All right, I need some help. Tanner, can I get your help real quick? Jillian, can I get your help? Uh, Ellie, how about you come and help me out too? All right, give everybody one of these. And Ellie, everybody raise your hand if you want Ellie to give you a pen. You need a writing utensil. Everybody, raise your hand if you want Ellie to give you a pen. Wow, this is already so fun. Okay, we're going to play Heads Up 7-Up. I'm just kidding. What we're actually going to do is we're going to play some memory games. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so fun. Okay, Ellie, I think Blessings is the last one. I need a pen right over here. Okay, okay. So on your paper, you'll see a spot for five slots, right? And you're going to use those lines to write in the answer, okay? We're going to start off easy. We're going to start off easy. I'm going to give you a few seconds to look at the, the sentence, right? I want you to remember it, and then I want you to write it back down, okay? Everybody look up at the screen. Everybody pay attention. Look up at the screen. Ready, set, go. Okay, okay, it's gone. Write down what you think you read. When you're done writing your sentence, say, I hate pulp. Wow, you guys are so agreeable today. Brittany, you gonna raise your hand? That's okay. That's okay. Amber will help you play. Okay. If you wrote orange juice is better without pulp, congratulations. You're both sane and you have a good memory. Okay. <laughs> what? I can't hear you. I'm, I have the microphone. Okay. <laughs> Test number two. This one's a little trickier. This one's a little trickier. Pay attention. Everybody look at the screen. Small details and big sentences can be hard to remember when read quickly. Okay. That's it right there. And it's gone. Go ahead and write down what you thought you saw and remembered. Okay. No, that's not how this game works, Deb. <laughs> when, you're, when you're done writing, say popsicle. Okay, we're getting pretty close to done then. If you wrote this, small details in big sentences can be hard to remember when read quickly. Congratulations, you have a good memory. Okay, this one, this one's going to be trickier. It's not a sentence. Okay? This is not a sentence. Everybody look up at the screen. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. Okay, it's gone. Okay, I want you to remember 
the objects that you saw and the color that they were. Oh, what? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, Brittany, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to take your question later. Well, that's how memory tests work. They're tricky. Are you asking what the tool is called? Because that is against the rules. I see what you're doing, Stacy. See what you're doing. I'm going to hide under my standing chain. All right. Here is what we had. If you wrote down green hammer, blue screwdriver, red saw, green saw, blue hammer, red screwdriver, congratulations. You have a great memory. If you called that orange, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't blame you for that. Okay. 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 I can see you guys are getting restless and a little angry. You guys calm down. Okay. Just... Everybody, everybody, we're going to box breathe, okay? Breathe in four. Hold it. Breathe out. Hold it. Okay, now we reset. Your mind's focused. You got a lot of oxygen up there. Remember these numbers. Look up at the screen. Okay, it's gone. Okay, go ahead and write down what you thought you saw. Oh, I see some concerned faces. What color was it? <laughs> okay, when you're done, say... Mm, say I'm done. Yeah. Okay, if you wrote down these numbers, 345650099, congratulations. You know my social security number. I'm just... No, that is... Right I'm just kidding though. That's not actually my social security number. But it is someone's. <laughs> I don't know who. But it is someone's. Um, by, by just out of curiosity. Raise your hand if you have your social security number memorized. Wow. <laughs> mm. uh, who has someone else's phone number memorized? How many have two other phone numbers memorized? That's actually pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. Okay. Who has their debit or credit card number memorized? All right. So if you're ever in a pinch, look around. You know who to call. They can give you their number. Okay. All joking aside, though, we're going to memorize a Bible verse now. Okay. And I'm not going to pick something easy. This isn't John 3.16. This isn't... Okay, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is something you've probably never committed to memory before. You ready? I want you to remember the words and the reference, okay? You will write it in just a second. Read it. Read it. Remember it. It's gone. Go ahead and write down what you think you saw. Perhaps one of the best words of wisdom in the Bible. When, when you're done, yell, good morning! Good morning! Wow. Either that's a good sign or a bad sign that you're the first one done. When you're, when you're done, yell, good morning. 
taken a while for some people, huh? I haven't heard any good mornings. <laughs> Bonjour. Okay. You could also say buenos dias if you wanted. What's good morning in Chichewa? All right, if you wrote down Proverbs 27 and 14, one who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be considered a curse to him. That's good advice. That's good advice. Good Bible verse. (laughs) There would be days at Bible college where I would not talk to anybody until 12. Wake up in the morning, me, Nate Massey, and Jacob Ward be walking around the apartment in silence. That was awesome. Because we're wise, we've read Proverbs. Okay, so memorizing is hard, right? Anybody get them all correct all the way through? What? Anybody get four out of the five correct? Anybody get three out of five correct? I got one correct. You got three out of five? Oh, okay, that's, that's pretty good. I knew they were going to be tricky. Memorizing is hard, but the more time you have, the easier it gets. But the things we try to commit to memory today aren't that important or worth remembering, except the Proverbs 27, 14. But there are a lot of things in our lives, people's names, anniversaries, birthdays, phone numbers, social security numbers. We have to remember a lot to navigate our everyday life. And the more important something is, right, the more likely it is for us to remember, the more important it is for us to remember. And as we go through our series on the Torah, you might be wondering, what are we talking about here? Well, an interesting fact is that uh, young Jewish children, traditionally, when they turned six, would start going to synagogue school. And they would learn to read and write. And the book that they would use to learn to read and write was the Torah. So starting at age six, they would start learning the Torah. They'd start memorizing it. And amazingly, incredibly... By the age of 10, almost every single kid would have all 79,976 words of the Torah completely memorized. Pretty incredible. Tommy, how much of the Torah do you have memorized? (laughs) You got Genesis 1-1 probably. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's part of it. You probably have little bits here uh, memorized. And what this shows us is just how important it was to the Jewish people. Which is why I think we should dedicate some time to studying it. Now, I'm not going to ask you guys to memorize all of it, but I think we should commit to memory at least the large-scale themes uh, because it stages everything for the rest of the Bible. This is, this is the section that they chose for kids to memorize first things in their life because it is so important. And last week, we looked at Genesis, and we broke it down into two sections. We looked at the big picture of creation and God's dealings with Abraham and his descendants. And the book of Genesis ends with Jacob and about 70 of his family members traveling to Egypt to escape the famine that was going on in the land. And Joseph became second in command in Egypt. And then between Genesis and Exodus, we don't know a lot about what happened. But what we do know is it was about 400 years. So Genesis ends. 400 years later, we wind up in, uh, in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus, and at, during this time, Israel has grown and grown in population. 
And the memory of Joseph, who was the second in command, slowly began to fade and shrink. I mean, time does that. And so that's where we pick up the book of Exodus. If you would, turn with me there. So let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, because uh, it will set the scene for what's going on. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So he, he didn't know what Joseph did. He didn't know about the uh, help he gave. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So this new Pharaoh comes along into power, and he doesn't know Joseph. And he sees the Israelites as a threat to his empire. And so this new Pharaoh starts to oppress the Israelites. This is what happens. He forces them into slave labor. And he also orders the killing of all Israelite boys to stop their population from growing and to reduce their ability to have a strong army. And as a result, many, many, many newborn boys get thrown into the Nile River to be killed. And instantly, first few verses of Exodus, we we see the same problems from Genesis popping back up again. We see Pharaoh who so drastically has crafted his own view of what he thinks is right, thinks that killing young, innocent boys is good. He's created his own definitions of good and evil, much like Adam and Eve did, and then into Cain, and then Lamech, and then all the way through, through Abraham's descendants who messed up over and over and over again. It's the same problem, just in a different package. Perhaps even worse, though, than it was in Genesis. So, at least one baby, though, is spared from this massacre. And his name is Moses. And Moses' mother puts him in a wicker basket, covered in pitch so that it floats. And he floats down the Nile River, and eventually he lands up in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter, which is a great place to be, because if anybody of you have daughters, or if you have a sister, you know they usually get what they want. Okay, so, so Pharaoh's daughter takes care of Moses, and in fact... Uh, Moses' mom actually gets paid to take care of him for the first few years of his life. Just an amazing act of God's mercy. So Pharaoh uh, is raised, excuse me, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. And uh, he gets educated like an Egyptian, he gets raised like an Egyptian, but he still has his Hebrew roots. And little do you know, but Moses is being prepared for this job that God has for him later down the road. Um, But we run into this uh, issue. You see that in Genesis, God made these promises to Israel. And he made the promise to Abraham and his descendants that he was going to bless the earth through them, that he's going to give them their own land. And here, 400 years later, where are we? Well, the Israelites are enslaved. They're being killed by the Egyptians. They're being forced to do labor. That does not fit into God's plan. That doesn't sound like his promise. And so this is what the book of Exodus is all about. It chronicles the rescuing of God's people and the expansion of God's promise to his people. Just uh, broadly speaking, the book of Genesis is broken down into two sections. 
uh, section 1, chapters 1 through 18. This talks about um, where we've already started a little bit here. This section covers um, the ten plagues of Egypt, the conflict between Pharaoh and God, uh, God actually bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, and it covers the story of Moses. And then the second section, 19 through 40, is a section at the foot of Mount Sinai where God makes his covenant with his people and where uh, he makes his, uh, gives instructions for his tabernacle and things along those lines, give the commandments. We'll get there in a minute, though. So as we've already stated, let's go into section one and dive a little deeper. Moses gets rescued from the Nile. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. But then Moses actually ends up as a fugitive of the Egyptian empire. You see, Moses sees an Egyptian uh, hassling a Hebrew one day, beating him, and he ends up accidentally killing this Egyptian, which makes him instantly a fugitive of the state. He has to flee the country. He goes to Midian, which is east of Egypt. And Moses lives out there for 40 years, and he's about 40 years old when this happens. So he's, he's almost 80 years old, and then eventually God miraculously shows up. And uh, Moses is tending the sheep. He comes to a burning bush, which is on fire. And, and then God just starts speaking to him out of the burning bush. Go to Exodus chapter 3 with me. And look at verses 7 through 10. Because this is what God says to Moses. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, and all the otherites. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, here's what he's going to do about it. Come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So God sees the suffering of his people. He remembers his promise to them. And he tasks Moses with bringing being the man who's going to help bring them out of Egypt, who's going to go and talk to Pharaoh. And Moses is not into this. He is not very sure about this job, but it turns out the God of the universe can be pretty convincing. So God gives Moses some of his power. And he goes and talks to Pharaoh. And he says, he says, let my people, yeah, that's right. I was hoping we'd all say it in unison like you knew where I was going. Let my people go. And he does it. Long story short, Pharaoh is not interested in losing his slave labor, surprisingly. In fact, Pharaoh puts an even heavier burden on the Israelite people. And the, uh, his interactions with Moses keep getting harsher and harsher, and he's not listening. So God steps it up a notch. And then we get to the famous plagues of Egypt. And the first plague was the plague of the Nile, turning it to blood. Let's go ahead and look at that together. Exodus chapter 7, 20 through 23. And this is where God really starts to say, Pharaoh, you need to listen. You need to listen to me. Look at Exodus 20 through 27, 20 through 23. So Moses and Aaron did 
as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, on the side of Pharaoh and on the side of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So, the first plague here. The first thing God said, listen, if you don't let my people go, here's what's going to happen. Boom, all the water turns to blood. And then his little Egyptian magicians pull some kind of trick or whatever. And they do the same kind of thing. So Pharaoh's like, oh, whatever. I don't even care. And his heart's hardened. His people are suffering. He doesn't care. And so these plagues continue. Pharaoh's mind does not get changed. And there end up being a total of 10 different plagues. And each plague is specifically designed by God to go directly in the face of an Egyptian god. To show that God's power is superseding both Pharaohs and the gods of Egypt and the wealth of their empire. So the first, here's a chart for you. The first one, of course, we just said is the Nile and the blood. And it goes against Hopi, who is the god of the Nile. The god of the Nile came to provide clean water, right? God turned it into blood. The god of Egypt can do nothing. And we're not going to go through all of them. But you can see here at this list um, how each time something happens, like the hailstorm, is directly against the goddess of the sky who should stop those kinds of things from happening, or uh, the, the lice come out of the dust of the earth. The god of Geb cannot do anything about it. He can't stop this from happening. And eventually, the tenth plague happens, which is the death of the firstborn in Pharaoh, who is seen as a god himself in Egypt. He, he's, like the, he's called the son of Ra, right? The, god, the sun god. He is the manifested god of Egypt, emperor, god, king. He cannot even protect his own family, right? Just straight in the face of Egyptian power. And his son was considered a god as well because he was heir to the throne. And so as this last plague approaches in the death of the firstborn of the son, the book slows down for just a chapter, right? The plague is boom, 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 boom. And then it gets to this last plague and it slows down. And God explains to his people the Passover, What's going to happen? And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And he tells them about this tradition that they're going to be doing every single year as a reminder of how God is going to deliver them out of Egypt. And it really sets the stage for Jewish tradition and Jewish practice. And even today, Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. More importantly than that, God is starting a trend here. He's looking for thousands of years to his son Jesus. And he's starting something now as a forerunner to his son and how he's going to save us. And, of course, Jesus does that. And he co-ops this Passover tradition. And he changes it, not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world, those who believe in him, as Jesus is this lamb who dies for our sins. So even all the way back in the Exodus, God is thinking about us and planning things out. So the book goes on. Pharaoh loses his firstborn son, and that breaks him. And finally, he's like, fine, just get out of here. I don't want you people in here anymore. You're ruining everything. So the Israelites go. They make it out of Egypt, but barely. And as soon as they make it out, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he's like, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to go kill them all. And so he sends an army after them. Once again, God performs a miracle. He 
creates a dividing line of fire between them and the army. And he splits the Red Sea. And Israelites pass through it on dry ground. Once they make it out of the other side, the, the army chases after them. The waters collapse. And in one foul swoop, the entire army of Egypt is wiped out. And finally, the Israelites land on the other side, out of Egypt, in the wilderness. And the Israelites come out of Egypt. And the first thing they do is they sing a song of praise. This is chapter 15. They're giving God the glory. And it talks about his plans and the kingdom. And what he's done and what he's going to do. But one chapter later, just days after this, they start complaining. They even wish to go back to Egypt. They said, did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? At least we had food in Egypt. The audacity. So God is good. He provides them food and water and everything else they need to survive. And that's when the first section ends. And now we're going to begin the second section here. Remember, that's sections 19 through 40, where God is going to establish his covenant. Look at Exodus 19 with me. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. This is going to start what God is doing. It's going to illuminate to us what God is doing here. So Moses went up to God on the mount, Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my promise, my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God begins to reveal to Moses and the people what his plans are for them. But in order to be holy, to be those nations of priests, they have to know what's right and wrong. They have to obey God. And so this is where the first part of the covenant, the first part of the promises come in, the famous Ten Commandments, like the first foundational laws that God puts into place. But it doesn't just stop at 10. In fact, by the end of the book, we have 52 different commands that God gives Israel. We have the big 10 commandments and then 52 others that come along with that. And during this time, God tries to speak directly to the people. He's on Mount Sinai and he talks down to them and he calls out to all the nation, but they cannot handle it. He, he, they're afraid. He's too awesome. He's too holy. The show of his power is too great. So they said, you know what, Moses? Why don't you just be the intercessor for us? You go up on the mountain, you talk to God in his small voice, so he's not scaring us, and then you come back and tell us what he said. And this is a forerunner, once again, to Jesus, who is this intercessor between God and us. Another foreshadowing, foreshadowing of what's to come. So while on the mountain, Moses gets detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle which is this movable tent where God is going to reside. And in these instructions, we get this, you might think this is super boring. Once you like, you're reading for like 10 chapters about the tabernacle, you're like, oh, this is terrible. But when you look at it in the scope of the big image here, what it's describing is this beautiful tent that is decorated with plants and flowers and fruit made out of these luxurious materials, almost like, 
God is trying to design a small piece of what the Garden of Eden was like. With a lush fruit and these flowers and these beautiful materials and how holy it is and how special it is. And he's saying, I want to be with you like it was in the beginning. So he creates this little slice of Eden, this movable place where God can reside. Because he's working towards the goal of being back with his people. But sin is still separating them, which is why he has to have this reserved place called the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. So he's trying to get closer to his people through this tabernacle. And also while on the mountain, he tells Moses um, who he is. Look at Exodus 34 with me. There's just a lot that goes on in this conversation between God and Moses. So look at Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren on the third and fourth generations. So in the book of Genesis, we see hints of God's character and how he chooses to interact with people. But in Exodus, God directly tells us who he is, very plainly. And while all this amazing stuff is going on and God is ascribing his character on Mount Sinai, the people are impatient. And they decide to build a golden calf and worship it as the God who rescued them from Egypt. Showing the continual failure of God's people to walk in trust and faith in him. A theme we saw in the book of Genesis as well. So that situation gets resolved. And the book ends, the book of Exodus ends with this grand opening of the tabernacle. And it's this moment where it gets anointed and a cloud of smoke with God's presence comes down on the tabernacle. All of Israel is gathered, and the scene is buzzing with energy. It, it would have just been amazing to see God coming down on the tabernacle. It's this momentous time where God is going to dwell right in the heart of his people. And as Moses goes near the tabernacle and he goes to enter, he's stopped at the door. He can't get in. Even Moses isn't good enough to be in the presence of God based on his own merit. And that's where the book ends. Just like that. Boom, shut down. Moses can't go into the tabernacle. Which leaves us with this hanging question. Who does get to get close to God? How do we get close to God? Who can enter the tabernacle? How can we be holy? And that's exactly what Leviticus is going to answer next week. So now what about you? What can you learn from the book of Exodus? Let's take something away from this. Number one, faith involves patience. If you're anything like me, you always don't have a lot of patience, especially when you're hungry. But through the book of Exodus, we see that sometimes it takes a long time for God's plans to come to fruition. Think about it. It took over 400 years from Abraham's promise between Joseph and when he actually got the Egyptians out of Egypt. It took Moses 80 years from his birth to be ready to confront Pharaoh 
The whole time, God patiently waiting for the right time to set his people free. And Moses on the mountain, when he's talking to God, the people grew impatient and built a golden calf for themselves because they didn't have trust and faith. They didn't want to wait for God. They didn't want to wait for his timing. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. If anything, Exodus tells us that patience and trust in God is very important. And our timing and our agendas are never going to work out as well if we force them. Just look at Pharaoh, who tried to force his agenda and his uh, desires onto God's plan. Did not work out well. Number two, God keeps his promises. Like we said, there was a lot of time between Abraham and the Exodus. And while many people may have forgotten what God said and his promises, God did not forget. God saw the suffering of his people and he remembered his promise to them. And he literally worked world-shaking power to make sure that he kept his promises. So keep that in mind because God made promises to us. And he will fulfill them. Number three, don't get caught up in the now. So in Exodus 5, 22 through 23, there's this interesting uh, section where God and Moses are talking. And Moses says this, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble to this people? Is this why you sent me? Even ever since I have went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Moses has this little temper tantrum. He says, nothing has gotten better since you sent me. It's only gotten worse. Moses wanted the Israelites set free. Now, he didn't see what God was doing or why he was doing it. I'm sure the people in Egypt wanted to get out as soon as possible. In the wilderness, the people couldn't see what God was doing. They wanted to be comfortable now. And so they complained. We also get caught up in the now, where we want to feel good now. We want, to, we want to be free now. We want to be doing something else right now. Instead of looking at what God is doing, looking at the big picture, looking at what he has planned, and trusting him through the process. So don't focus on the now. Focus on the future with hope, knowing that God is going to bring us through pain and bondage and suffering and wandering and danger to a good place. So I hope you've enjoyed looking at the book of Exodus this morning. And while we did not go into full detail of this book, I hope you see the big picture and what God was doing in Exodus. Our God is good. We see that. He is powerful. He is merciful. He is loving. And if we trust that, we will not be disappointed. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you so much for setting the example of your awesome power through the book of Exodus. I pray that you allow us to rely on that and hope that you will fulfill your promises for us too. It's in the mighty name of your son that we pray. Amen.